Now, moving into our passage for our chapter, the last chapter in the book of Ezra this morning, uh, by way of reminder, family, we are Christians, which means that we are united by faith in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is an orthodox faith. Raise your hand if you are familiar with that term, orthodoxy. Please, raise your hand if you're familiar with the term orthodoxy. This term simply means right thinking or right belief. Orthodoxus. To be a Christian is to be concerned with having right beliefs. Historically, the Church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, has been united by confessions and creeds passed down, which consist of collective beliefs about God, Jesus, humanity, sin, and salvation, to name a few core Christian beliefs. Okay, so we're committed to orthodoxy, right belief. Now, raise your hand if you are familiar with the term orthopraxy. Orthopraxy. Couple. Couple. Big difference there. Can you guess what that means? Right. Practice. Christians should be deeply concerned with having right practice. That is to live rightly in line with their beliefs. Christianity, therefore, must consist of both. Orthodoxy should result in orthopraxy. The Apostle James, what we believe as Christians should directly influence how we live as Christians. You get that? The Apostle James says, to have orthodoxy without orthopraxy is dead. It's not real faith. And the great philosopher, theologian, and pastor Francis Schaeffer, originally from Philly, takes it one step further and says, to have orthodoxy without praxy is surely the ugliest thing in the world. That's a powerful word. Okay, so that makes sense, right? Right belief produces right behavior. If you look at our statement of faith online as a church, you'll see 10 articles on our statement of faith adopted from the Evangelical Free Church of America. Together, they consist of what we believe and how we are committed to live in view of our beliefs. It should go without saying... But to clarify, the standard for measuring our rightness in belief and practice, of course, is the very Word of God, the Bible. Now, lastly, raise your hand if you've ever heard of orthopathy. Some med workers... And that's a, that might be a different term, the way that it's used. Orthopathy, where's the hands? Now, this is interesting. Can you guess what that means? Right. Emotions. Right. Emotions. We don't hear about this much, unfortunately. Because God cares deeply about the disposition of our hearts in view of our beliefs. Christians should be just as concerned about having right feelings in view of our beliefs. You see a slide right here that pulls together all three 
as essential aspects of the Christian life. Orthopathy is especially important for us to understand in our day where the, the, the drive of society is increasingly emotional over rational. How does this or that make me feel is the question at heart driving much of our society. So, for Christians, is there a standard for how we should feel about various realities, circumstances, people, sin, God? I think so. And I believe that the standard for measuring right emotions is the same standard that we use for measuring right belief and practice, the Bible, God's Word. Now, keep these three aspects of the Christian life in view as a kind of framework to help us interpret what's happening in our text here this morning. Another way to think of this is head, our head, our hearts, and our hands, what we think, what we feel, what we do, how we live, head, heart, hands. Another way to think of this. The question that was left hanging after last week's sermon in Ezra 9 was, what's going to happen now? Ezra was informed of the prevailing sin of the community, that they have been intermingling with the peoples of the lands and in doing so have been led astray from faithfulness to their God. Starting with the priests and the leaders to the community at large, they betrayed the direct commandments of God to be a holy people set apart, separate from the peoples of the land in their worship and devotion to Yahweh alone, their faithful God and Savior. They broke their covenant again. Ezra 9, we saw last week, records for us his prayer of corporate confession to God in view of the community's unfaithfulness. Let's pick up now in Ezra 10 to see what happens next. Pray with me before we enter into, this, into the text. And after we pray, if you need a Bible, the ushers will be passing them out. We'll also have some verses, uh, the verses, the passage up on the screens. Pray with me, please. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come in today burdened and heavy laden, weary of heart, mind, body, and soul. Lord, so we gather here today to you to find rest. God of hope, would you give us today encouragement from your word? Console us in your word, encourage and empower us by your Holy Spirit as we read and receive your holy word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Ezra 10, the first six verses. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, 
Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A couple observations right from the start. First, there's a transition. Notice the transition back from first person, Ezra, himself speaking in chapters 7 through 9, to third person. The narrator taking over again and zooming back out, finishing the story. Second observation. Verse 10.1 links with the beginning of chapter 9, what we actually read last week. Ezra is informed of the communal unfaithfulness. He tears his garments in grief and sorrow. He pulls out his hair drops to the ground, appalled, and cries out to the Lord in prayer. That's what we saw last week. Here, chapter 10 begins, while I was weeping, or while he was weeping, prostrating himself in front of the temple, praying and making confession. That's the prayer of chapter 9. A very large assembly gathered around him. Now, Can you imagine this scene? The Jewish scribe to the king himself sent to enforce the Jewish and Persian law in all of Judea and Jerusalem. And here that man is weeping and prostrating himself before the temple. Why? 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 How? How can we do this? A bit much? You think? I'd probably think so. What would you think, men, if your leader was weeping, prostrating himself, wailing? What would you say? All right, man, all right, all right, all right. That's enough. Compose yourself. Now, comp- he, he's okay. He's just a little upset. He'll be, all right, bro, all right, all right. Come on, come on. <laughs> Was his emotional response fitting? Was that appropriate? We might say today, crying like a baby over the sin of God's community? Brian said it well last week. Yes, it was a very proper response from the spiritual leader over their collective sin. Collective sin. It wasn't just one or two cases. The leaders and a great many corrupted the community by allowing this unfaithful behavior to go on and on and become normative. Ezra didn't just say when he heard, oh, well, we all sin. Everybody struggles. Though that is true, he didn't use that as a means to pacify his his conscience. Ezra was a man committed to right belief and right practice in the eyes of God. And therefore, Scripture tells us, he was blessed. And that's why this news devastated him. Because he knew deeply, as stated in his prayer that we saw last week, God is so good, so merciful, so patient, so faithful. He's given us more than we could ever deserve or imagine over and over again. How, how can we keep cheating on him? And so he weeps. A right emotional response. The people gather around in a very large assembly. And scripture says they see and they hear the response of Ezra. And they begin to weep. Bitterly. 
Now this is a bona fide cry fest. What's important to note here is that Ezra's emotional response to the people's sin, his tears, his prayer, his corporate confession, proved to be transformative. It was contagious. He didn't have to slap them around yelling, you fools. He just weeps and prays because he cares so deeply for his God and the well-being of his people. And it caused what appears to be a revival in the hearts of the people. He didn't notice this. He didn't even address the people at all yet. He didn't say a word yet. He goes straight to God in, 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 in tears and in prayer and so followed the hearts of the people toward God and conviction comes over them all. Then they speak to him first. Shechaniah from the community responds with, with a proposal urging Ezra to act. Now that's leadership influence through example. Shechaniah says, we're guilty. We've married unbelievers of God and so confused our identity as his people. We've led our people astray. Yet. These are powerful words coming. Some translations say, even now, there is hope for Israel, our people, in spite of this. Even though we've abandoned God's word and ultimately God himself, even now, we still have hope in him. He must have heard Ezra's prayer closely that God's loving kindness endures forever for his people. You like the sound of that? I know I do. Even now, God? Back to where we were at the beginning of the book? Do you still accept me? Even now, God's arms remain open. So Shechaniah proposes a kind of covenant renewal after breaking God's covenant. And we don't necessarily like what he suggests, huh? Send away all the women and children. Divorce them all. Shechaniah notes, this is what you've counseled us in your teaching, my Lord, addressing Ezra, according to the law of God in Deuteronomy, which we saw last week, that we are to be holy as God is holy, set apart from the people of the land in our worship and devotion to God alone. Shechaniah says, let it be done, arise, we are with you, have courage, act. We must restore our holiness. And Ezra doesn't challenge this proposal, but rather he receives it and makes the leaders swear that they're willing to do as was proposed. And they swore it. Ezra still hasn't directed them to do anything yet. Actually, he walks off. He has more weeping to do by himself, Scripture says. This man was sincere. His weeping prayer was not a leadership tactic. This brother is responding rightly, emotionally, to wrong practices of God's people who claim to have right belief. You see the three at work? 
Let's read on and see how the community responds. Verses 7 through 17. They made a proclamation throughout, Ju throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly re replied with a loud voice, That is right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people, it is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of, Ahazel, of, of, of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supporting them. But the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of the father's households for each of their father's households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Notice verse 7. They made a proclamation. The community owns this plan together. Family, we've been seeing this communal unity and this communal ownership since the beginning of the book. This is a key element of this book as we move forward. It's important for us as today as, as we continue to consider our unity and priorities together as a united community of God. The community owns this plan together. They call all the returned exiles to Jerusalem, the center of worship. They state, anyone who does not come, consider yourself cut off, excommunicated from the assembly of God, and your possessions destroyed. That's this word here for forfeited. This word literally... Is a, this is an important Hebrew word. We see it in several points in the Old Testament. Harem. It means to devote to destruction, but carries a religious sense. This is the same word used when Joshua was first leading his people into the promised land and was commanded to destroy everything, to devote it to destruction so that the people of God in the promised land of God would be holy, pure. So the same purpose is intended here. They're convicted over their rebellion and guilt, and they want to make every effort to redefine themselves as God's holy people again. Verse 9 says, Everyone gathered in the open square in front of the temple and they trembled because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. You can feel the intensity of the chill over these people. Chilled to the core, internally and externally. 
It's rainy season, about mid-December. So the heavy rain presses heavily on them in the open square, as does the guilt before their holy God, weighing heavily on their hearts. They too are now appalled over their sin. A right emotion in view of a right perspective of their holy, faithful God. The holiness of God is both attractive and terrifying for unholy creatures like us. Ezra the priest then takes his stand and in just a few sentences confirms the indictment of the people and declares the appropriate judgment. You've been unfaithful, he says, in your apostasy marriages. And you've added guilt to the congregation, resulting in God's fierce anger toward us. Now, he says, affirming even now, there's still hope for us. Confess your sin to God and do God's will. Turn from your ways and back toward his ways. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and your foreign wives. Now, at this point, we might be starting to feel a bit uncomfortable with the sending away, with, with connecting the sending away of the, the women and children with God's will. In order for us to understand and work through this, we have to, we have to understand, zoom out and understand the big story, the big picture of what's happening here. This word, separate yourself from the peoples, from your wives, separate is part of the very definition of to make holy. God is holy, meaning he is set apart, separate from all his creation in his absolute purity and infinite perfection. The opening words of the Bible make this clear. God also makes clear that he has purposed to redeem a people back to himself ever since the fall, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve brought sin and death upon all of humanity, corrupted and condemned all of humanity as a result of their sin. What we see all throughout Scripture is that God is at work making his people holy as he is holy. And this is how he does it. This is my concise paraphrase of God's work of redemption for his people in all the Old Testament. You ready? This is how he starts. I love you. I choose you to be my beloved out of all the peoples of the earth. I know. I know. It doesn't make any sense because you certainly don't deserve it. But it's true. You're mine now. And I'm yours. No thing nor anyone can separate us from each other forever and ever. And I'm going to bless you in unbelievable ways. You can trust me. I promise. I covenant myself to you. I'm going to cause you to believe in me, love me, and live for me all the days of your life with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you'll love each other likewise. 
I'm going to show you all how to live in worship and devotion to me in such a way that all the peoples of the world will look upon you and see me. Holy, holy, holy. My name will be magnified among you. My glory will shine from you and be a light to the nations through you. All the nations will look at you and say, Who is like these people? In their wisdom and their ways, surely God is with them. That's how much I love you. Now, just trust me and follow me and all will be well. Sounds pretty good, huh? That's a pretty good deal. That's pretty special. And yet, what is also made clear, abundantly clear, all through the Old Testament, is that the people of God are addicted to covenant breaking. They love the deeds of the flesh too much. Money, power, sex, food, booze, beauty, pride, safety, security, luxury, comfort. God is not enough. And herein lies the chief problem in all the Old Testament. How can a holy God who loves his glory also love a people who trample his glory in their unholiness? That's the problem. In all the Old Testament. And right here what we have is a manifestation of that very trembling. Choosing their own wives for their own reasons, their own pleasure, their own preservation. Without any regard for the holiness of God's community for God's sake. From last week. We saw in Deuteronomy 7, the issue with marrying worshipers of other gods and of other ideologies is that it influences the generations beyond. And it blurs more and more the community of God with the community of the world. This wasn't just one or two cases, remember. This was a widespread practice across the whole community. The holiness of God's name reflected in the holiness of the community transcends all matters at hand. That's the big picture. The people know this. They see this. They see what they've done and they repent. They're convicted. Hence the conclusion these marriages have got to be broken up. They're apostasy marriages. We left our God. Keep in mind something, though. Malachi, a contemporary prophet of Ezra, notes in Malachi 2 that God hates divorce. Addressing another wrong practice where Jewish men were leaving their Jewish wives to marry ungodly heathen women. This was a common practice. So we know that when it comes to God's will, he requires that his people pursue holiness as chief importance in all areas of life, including choosing your spouse and overseeing our households. And we know that he hates divorce. 
What we have here in Ezra 10 is descriptive narrative. It's important to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive words of God. What we have is descriptive narrative. We, we have, we have the, the narrator describing a particular situation in a stage of redemptive history where the people of God make an interpretive decision according to God's law in order to redefine the boundaries of their membership in their holy community. That's what they're doing here. In other words, for us, if you have an unbelieving spouse, do not divorce them as they did. In the New Testament, Jesus makes clear what he prescribes to the church. What God has brought together in the union of marriage shall not be broken. The Apostle Paul prescribes in his own words, he says, 1 Corinthians 7, we heard this last week, that believers choose, should choose another believing spouse. Brian made mention to that last, last week. To yoke our same, ourselves according to the same core commitments and convictions of loving God and living faithfully for him all the days of our life. But Paul also makes mention that we're all in different situations where some of us come to Christ later in life, some of us come to Christ uh, where only one of us comes to Christ during our marriage and the spouses may not come to Christ yet. And it even may be difficult. Paul says, stay married as a witness to the gospel of love and peace that they too, your spouse, might come to love Jesus for who he really is. Now, there is much more to say about marriage, divorce, remarriage. There are a few New Testament scriptural permissions for divorce that must be carefully and sensitively discerned. Sin destroys a lot. God knows this. He is merciful. And if any of you today are struggling with, 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 with how to persevere and continue on in your marriage, for whatever difficult the circumstance is, whether it's directly pertaining to having an unbelieving spouse or whatever it is, family, it is so important that you know that we are here for you. We want to walk with you, help you discern God's will and, and how to move forward with all wisdom. So we're here for you. Come talk to us if you find yourself in a difficult place in your marriage. But I'm not going to go any further here because it's important that we note the major dissimilarity between Ezra 10 and our day. In the New Testament, the discussion pertains to individual cases. And in Ezra 10 here, it's the community at large walking away from God to yoke themselves with worshipers of other gods, corrupting the congregation. It's a corporate theological issue. This text is primarily concerned with the holiness of God's community, not the welfare of individual families. However, what we see here also is clearly this was not an easy decision. The people propose a plan in view of the big task at hand and the depth of their guilt, and they say, it's raining out. This is too big of a, of a situation. Let us go back to our villages. Let's do this over time. We will, we'll send you representatives, and you can work through this over time. And that's what they do. It says the exiles did so. It took about three months from what we see in the passage here. This was no light matter for them. And in verse 15, notes that four of the members even didn't agree with this plan. Not sure exactly why, but this was a big decision, a radical step in pursuing holiness. What might you have chosen? Let's read the final verses, 18 through 44, and see the final report. 
Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jarib, and Gedaliah. They pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Of the sons of Emer, there were Hanani and Zebediah, and of the sons of Harim, Aseah, Elijah, Shimeah, Jehiel, Uzziah, and of the sons of Pashur, Elioenai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nathanel, Josabad, and Elasa. Of Levites, there were Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalida, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, there was Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalem, Telem, and Uri. Of Israel, of the sons of Perosh, there were Ramiah, Isaiah, Melchizedek, Mijamin, Eliezer, Melchizedek, and Benaiah. And of the sons of Elam, Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. And of the sons of Zatu, Elioenai, Eliashib, Madaniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, Aziza. And of the sons of Bibai, Jehonan, Hanani, Zebai, and Athlai. And of the sons of Bani, Meshulam, Meluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth, and of the sons of Pehath, Moab, Adna, Shilal, Benaiah, Maaseah, Madaniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh, and of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishijah, Melchizedek, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah, and of the sons of Hashum, Madaniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremy, Jeremy! Oh, no, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bedeah, Shaluhi, Benaiah, Merimoth, Eliashib, Metaniah, Metanai, Jasu, Bani, Benui, Shimei, Shalemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Meknadabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azaral, Shalemiah, Shemariah, Shalem, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebu, there were Jael, Merathiah, Zabad, Zabida, Jairai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. There you go. My list of names. Okay, maybe it wasn't as good as Brian says it, but that was pretty good. That was pretty good. He's a master at Hebrew names. He really is. The list starts with guilty priests. If there is a purification and correction of the community, it must start with the leaders. This is a message all throughout Scripture. And here in verse 19, we have the twofold solution to the problem of their unfaithfulness. One, a pledge to divorce the women. And two, seek reconciliation with God through a guilt offering. Necessary steps in restoring holiness to God's community. The guilt offering was a common animal sacrifice which would take place when someone acted unfaithfully against that which is holy to the Lord. We see this in Leviticus 5 and 6. They would take an unblemished ram, as we see here, and offer it as a sacrifice in their place to atone or cover over their sin. Atonement, according to God's law, is required for the forgiveness of sins, large and small. Now, family, here we are, the end of the book. By the end of the book, which is really quite tragic, there are two things that become clear for the people of God. One, their discipline, the discipline of their 70-year exile, has not yet redeemed the bondage of their hearts towards sin. And two, therefore, the people still eagerly await their redemption. Purity is unattainable for them. Family, maybe some of us feel this way today. I just can't stop sinning. I know it corrupts me and those around me. I know what God wants of me, but it's just too difficult. It's unattainable. I'm addicted. 
I can't stop drinking like everyone else in the world. There is no difference. I can't stop looking at porn. It's changing my mind. Sexually, morality has become normative for me. I can't stop being so angry with people and politics. I can't stop talking about others in the church, venting frustrations. I know it divides, but it feels so good. I feel right and powerful. I can't stop thinking about me and my family alone. It's all that really matters. I can't stop wanting more and more. I need more and more. I can't stop controlling everything. It's the only way to be sure. I'm just so worried. To us all, I would say, you're right. The holiness that God requires of us is not attainable by us. And to pursue it on our own is just exhausting and so discouraging. But there's good news. Even now, the holiness that God requires from us, He gives to us. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Remember, every day, the holiness that God requires from us, he gives to us. Among the final words of the Old Testament through the prophet Malachi are that one day the purifier will come and purify the sons of Israel. And this purifier has come, Jesus Christ who lived his perfect life in perfect holiness in our place and died as the great and final guilt offering on the cross in our place so that for those who believe in him would have forgiveness of sins and eternal reconciliation with God. Family, we have hope. This is the solution to God's chief problem. I'm going to send my son to die for you to make this right. The holiness that God requires from us, he gives to us. By faith in the person and work of Jesus, he renews our hearts. He removes our hearts of stone, replaces it with his own heart, his Holy Spirit, who permanently dwells in us. Family, that's what we call conversion. Transformation, regeneration, being born again, becoming a new creation, holy, set apart for his sake and made pure by his Holy Spirit at work in us and through us. Look to Christ, family. Believe in him. Receive him, his Holy Spirit, to enable and empower you to love him and live for him. He will empower you if you believe. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. 
I am your savior, your bridegroom, your friend, your bread, your water. I will satisfy you in every way. I am your peace, your security. I am your joy, your very fountain of life. Family, don't settle for crumbs on the floor when there's a feast on the table. Believe in me, Jesus says. Love me. And he who abides in my love will do what I say because you know it is good. Holistic holiness. Transformation of mind, our beliefs, heart, our emotions, and life, our practice. Our heads, our hearts, our hands, pure like Christ. He gets the glory, we get the joy. In closing, family, this is not just for us as individuals. Paul writes, Christ died to purify a people for his own possession, a community, his church. On display to the world of the, of, and the spiritual forces of evil of the wisdom and wonder and power of God. Family, we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we might proclaim the majesty and mercy and glory of Christ together. Amen? Amen. Let's strive together toward holiness, true holiness for Christ's sake. I want to see this church shine brighter and brighter. He will work powerfully through us if we follow him and believe what he says. Confess your sins to God and one another. Ask forgiveness to God and from one another. Strive for real unity. Accept nothing less, family. Watch your hearts and above all, put on Christ entirely. Look to him, love him, and live for him that he would be magnified through us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us of our sins, Lord. Forgive us of the sins we know about and that which we just have become callous to and are not even aware of. Have mercy on us, Lord. Grant conviction over us. Lead us in righteousness and holiness. Lead us in repentance and faith that we would represent you well, represent your love, pour ourselves out in love and good works, that we would think rightly, feel rightly, and live rightly in the eyes of God all the days of our life, that we would be filled with joy. Make your name known and glorify you, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry to keep you all. The Lord's blessing upon you. May, God, may the God of peace, Paul's blessing to the church of Thessalonians, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Lord bless you all.